This is Live from the Vault, the Hearsmith Podcast, a raw and unfiltered look at the world of entrepreneurship, business, and the absurdity of modern life. I am your host, Chad Coleman, founder of Hearsmith, here with my co-host, the one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, DeAndre Dow. Blessed as always to be here, Chad, and I love that introduction all the time, every time. (laughs) Right on, man. Yeah. Got to give you props, man. You deserve it. Uh, Check out DeAndre's stuff at nocap.world. Awesome headwear brand, yeah. Um, so how you been, DeAndre, man? What's been going on? Been doing a little bit of everything, Chad. Most recently just launched the Instagram campaign, so just doing a little bit more research on the insights and analytics and algorithms and all that, so I've been studying up. Nice, And man. then just diversifying my portfolio, getting into other revenues, streams of revenues, I should say. Nice, creating some passive income and stuff like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. You already know, I love those words. <laughs> Everybody's favorite word. we got to do a whole episode about passive income. We should. Super cool. That's a good topic. Absolutely. Yeah. Noted, my friend, noted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that's awesome. I'm glad you're here doing that. And I'm super excited to welcome our guest today, uh, John McGee, CPA, uh, co-founder of McGee Davis & Associates. Uh, here in the uh, Denver area, uh, accountant extraordinaire. How you doing today, John? Really good, Chad, and I appreciate you for having me on. Oh, man, it's uh, awesome to have you here. John is just such an incredible accountant, and if there's one thing every small business owner needs, it's an incredible accountant to you know, save you money, to devise you, to guide you along the way of, of the financial side of your business. I know that's something that, you know, starting a business, uh, my first... Well, my first agency, at least, like six or seven years ago at this point, I was uh, in a situation where I just saw it as like, man, I don't really know a lot about all this stuff. So I'm going to outsource this (laughs) because if you F this up, (laughs) you can go to jail. The government does not like it when you mess up your taxes. They will get you. All the things that Al Capone did, all the people he killed and robbed, what they get him for? Tax fraud. <laughs> so I'm like, I am not messing with this. I'm hiring, a, I'm hiring somebody that can take care of this for me. And and, and uh, yeah, so I'm excited to get your insights, John, on on small businesses and and um, and just to start it off, you know, what do you see? You work with so many small businesses, man. We've talked about your client base before, and what do you see as like the the biggest? Uh, or most common, maybe is a better way to put it, most common accounting mistake that that small business owners do? Um, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, it, it, it varies from business to business and size to size and, and phase of growth and that. Um, some of the common mistakes I think a lot of people I see in small business make is they don't, they don't start that payroll or that salary for themselves soon enough. Mm. And, and that idea is that they're going to grow into that business that uh, um, is able to pay them uh, a salary like a, a normal job, and they're going to take home and build a, a budget on their own personally. A lot of times what happens is out of cash flow constraints or requirements, that business account and personal account kind of mold into one big, <laughs> big right. melting pot, right? Right. <laughs> and, and, it, and it becomes more difficult to manage your business more strategically when you got a lot of these other expenses in the way. And it's also difficult to develop a personal discipline to your own budget 
if the business is always paying for stuff. Right. Yeah, I could see that, man. Like, so you're talking about like basically because they didn't like budget in or plan in their own salary and like really stick to it that they end up using that. Uh, you know, sometimes it's just a little cheaper to like, oh, I'll throw my groceries on my business Amex this week. And Ace. instead of, uh, you know, instead of just paying myself a salary, is that the kind of thing you're. That's, yeah. a, that's exactly it, Chad. And, and anybody that's ever done this, um, I would ask them, how much money did you spend on groceries in your business? And everybody just has a blank look. Well, that's my point. You're not tracking it. You, know, right. you don't understand it. If you moved it over to your personal, you know, honey, why know. did we spend so much money on groceries last <laughs> week? <laughs> so there, there would at least be a little bit more accountability for it. But if it just washes in that business, mixes in with everything that you pay, um, somehow it gets lost. And, and that's what I see. I think probably the most common thing with a lot of startup businesses and small businesses that they just out of, again, out of cash requirements, they spend out of one account. Yeah. I think when you start a business, you should definitely decide like, okay, this is a salary that I need to make and like start with that in the planning process. I mean, we all know how it can go in business. I mean, sometimes you have a pandemic and it throws your plans off and everything back (laughs) up and there goes your cash flow. Right. But, uh, but it, nonetheless, it's like you've got to like bake that into the overall pie of what you're trying to create. Because if you don't, it can you can fall into that trap of, oh yeah, this week I can get paid, and this week I can't, and then this week I can, and then, and yeah. uh, you know that's no way to run your life, let alone your business. It's like really hard on your family. And- it, it so is, and we we've all been in that moment with our businesses of just survivor mode where. Yeah. You, you do what you have to do. You, you pay out of whatever account has money and, yep. and you move forward. But everybody, I think, will also realize in that same time, that's not a forward plan to get you through any significant growth. Right. And to be fair, we're not taught these things. We're not taught how to be entrepreneurs. We're more so conditioned to go to school, get a earn job. a degree in your trade, yep. and then go work for somebody else, much less become fiscally responsible. Yes. So only true. 30% of people in the world are financially literate. Correct. And you know, it's interesting too, along that DeAndre, is that a lot of times I see people that make it past that third year, that critical third year of business, and most of them are just pure survivors. They're scraping, they're hustling wherever they can, they're, they're molding the business and the personal accounts, whatever needs, but they survive and, and they make it to another day. But if, if you're going to plan to have a better day and, and the future and the growth that you want, eventually you're going to get led into those points where you can separate the two and manage the two differently. Yeah, for sure. And that that's so true about the financial literacy thing. It's yeah. It's incredible to me like how much I've learned about like just generally how money works since starting a business, you know? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. laughs over right. right. I mean, it's he like, I, that. that's crazy. Yeah. Like, how is that not like taught in schools? Yeah. Like, how is there not a class of like, you know, just explaining like, you know, pillars of like the importance of like insurance to your overall financial health, the, the importance of investing. What is investing? How do you do it? Um, you know, uh, you know, all those things, you know, having a budget, it seems so silly, you know, it seems so silly mm-hmm. that like this is such a basic requirement for being a human being in, in America in, in, you know, in the last over the last like, you know, basically like 50 to 100 years. It's basically been required. How have we not worked this into the, the school system? Here, <laughs> that's you know, the truth, right. Absolutely. Life is the craziest teacher because it'll give you the test first and then the lesson. after. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of what you just said, the only way you 
got this experience is by gaining that experience. It's by yeah. actually ex- going through it. Right. And unfortunately, like, we don't. And, and you know, Chad, that that was the thing I, I thought about with teaching this in in school as well. We don't do it interactive like we should. I mean, the, the, one of the best things that I and I was I taught this is when I was younger was junior achievement. And mm. if you can remember, they come to school, but but it was more interactive. So. You learned about business by owning your own company or starting it and making donuts or putting on sprinkles. and But again, it was interactive. And I think the kind of financial um, literacy that people need, that, that I see with my clients, it needs to be taught in high school. I agree with you guys, but it needs to be taught interactive as well. So then you have class student participation. They're, yeah. they're talking about what they what their thoughts are and their goals are and they're understanding these things instead of just having it thrown at them. So you were fortunate enough to have that experience. I don't know about you, Chad, but did you have anything like that as no, well? No, man, did there you? was no, I mean, I guess maybe there, there, I never took home ec, but I know like my class was the last year that they actually had home ec in my high school. And I think they taught like basic like budget Mm-hmm. But it was from like a housing, like, okay, you know, it was like a real super old school, like here, here's how much you make and mm-hmm. here's how to budget out. And like, that was it. I mean, listen, that's something, but A, you know, how many people take home Mac? I mean, they got rid of the class because nobody was taking it, you know? Absolutely. Right. And, and only 17 out of 50 states require high schools to teach at least one class in personal finance. Wow. No kidding. Wow. Jeez. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. That's messed up. I mean, you know, John, maybe you can speak to the fact of like what kinds of results or like what kinds of things can happen if you do, how you can set yourself up so much better if you do early adopt and really start taking it upon yourself because it's not part of our education system. Uh, what kind of what kind of difference can that make in someone's life? I, I think what the biggest difference that kind of early education can make for somebody is in you might hear this from Dave Ramsey with the the uh, the discipline and the savings and the sacrifice for the future. But that type of stuff is going to teach you the value of patience and being able to uh, you know invest your time and efforts now and and wait a little bit more instead of. Uh, that, a little bit of that constant gratification or right. that we seek that gets us in the hole, and that's where the whole credit thing comes in from. We, we spend more than we make. Mm-hmm. And, and I think having those thoughtful conversations early on with people and, and people understanding, because people understand cash flow, Chad. They, they understand money coming in. They right. understand money going out. Mm-hmm. They don't understand how they can control themselves Right. From exactly. It, it, yes. it, and yeah. have an effect on those exactly. two things. <laughs> Knowing what's coming in and controlling what's going out. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, back to that teaching of, of literacy, they teach you what to do, but they don't teach you how to face those decisions when we face them. And that's where we all go wrong when we right. become sole proprietors. Like, oh, man, I read the book on, uh, you know, business startups for dummies. And then I hit that moment when um, I could put the money into a networking group or I can maybe pay the rent early or just save it, you know, and now what do I do? Right. And, and those are the things that are constantly get us in trouble. If we had that plan, if we had that patience, if we had that look for a year to two to three years from now, then it's easier to look past those moments, right? Mm-hmm. right. And, and I guess that idea is trying to have more of that picture because what, what are we trying to do? We're trying to remove the emotions of the moment because that's what's going to... Right. Everybody, everybody eats before they go grocery shopping. <laughs> right. Because right? <laughs> if I'm emotional in there, I'm, I'm going to cave. Oh, yeah. I'm dropping the, like 250 if I'm go, if I'm hungry in the grocery oh, yeah. store. Forget about it. And then you come home like, 
I haven't had this in 10 years. Right. <laughs> hey, I haven't eaten these since I was a kid. What did I buy this for? You know, you're like, oh, shit, $250 uh, grocery bill. It's normally $120. You know? Right. right. <laughs> and and, and yeah. everybody will even tell you if you ever get in a fight, fighting a guy that's not mad is yeah. not a good situation because nah. they're not going to lose anything. And, and it's the same thing when we do businesses. We're, we know we're going to be emotionally involved. We know that cash is going to come, uh, that cash flow crunch. Mm-hmm. But we don't have the patience and the vision sometimes that we don't plan for those moments. And then we get sucked into those emotional responses, which tend to keep us in the moment and unfortunately keep our businesses locked in those moments and not be able to see that future. It can become a hamster wheel for people, And it, right? it really can. Like I, I've, I've worked with some clients on some financial strategies, and, and we've done things like find a way to set aside $200 a month. Okay, with, and then do what? Nothing. Just keep setting it aside. Wait a year or two. Now it's gone to two, three, four thousand dollars. Now you can do something. You can pay off right. a credit card. You can go buy another truck. You can right. right. Now you can make an impact in your business. But two hundred dollars a month is not impacting your business. Right. The it's pa- a small sacrifice. The patience, that you could make. correct. Right. Making it to a bigger one, and then now you're taking bigger steps that maybe move you to where you can make three hundred a month. And then now it's not so hard to save. As, you know, it doesn't take as long to save for that next step. I agree with you a thousand percent, John. And I feel like that's the challenge today, especially with millennials and even more so Gen Z, where you have people between the ages of 15 and 21, where they're all about instant gratification. Mm -hmm. They don't know patience. Of course, everything in their world is delivered to them in real time on their phone. It's like right there. But Mm -hmm. Chad, even John is speaking about the importance of interaction. Yeah. These kids are going to school online right now. Yeah. Yeah, no interaction. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. got to be tough because that, that component is so huge for, for ed- your education. And, yeah, it's crazy. On a lot of different levels. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. And, 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 I, and the greatest thing I, I remember from junior achievement or from, from dialogues like that with, with high school kids or with younger kids when you're teaching, um, when you're teaching financial literacy and things is their visions, right? DeAndre, what kind of business would you have? What would your business look like? Well, how would you hire people? You know, <laughs> right. what would they do? But if it's their vision, they remember it, man. You're building their right. house. That's yeah, their house. Exactly. That's not Chad's house. That's not DeAndre's house. That's their house. That's my kitchen. That's my living room. Right. I know what that looks like. You have to, like. like, put it in context. Then I remember things. Right. Right, See, because now the, the rules you're teaching me make sense to me, help me, I'm not going to forget those. And that's like foreign language to me, everything that he's speaking on. You don't typically hear in a traditional classroom setting. What oh, is absolutely. your vision? No. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. What's the Fortune 500 companies? <laughs> right, right. How do you contribute? <laughs> or how about just straighten your desk and shut up? And <laughs> I mean, that's what I heard. You know? <laughs> shut up and then straighten your desk and do your homework and you'll be fine. And then you'll get that dreamy corporate job you've been dreaming about. Exactly. Well, that's the thing I think is wrong with the education system is that we teach this. We teach the kids and it's getting better. I see this in my nephews, but even when my daughter's generation, she's only 20, they're still teaching them like they're uh, trying to teach uh, or prepare people for a factory job where they're stamping something every you know five seconds for eight hours a day. And that's not the world we live in anymore. They need to make it, to John's point, they need to make education contextual and they need to make it project-based. Because what do we do in our lives, in our careers? We have these goals. This is the project that we're going to be working on. We work in teams a lot of times and we come together to figure out how we're going to do this. Well, why isn't our education system like that? Like make a business in the class 
have the kids decide what the business is. Mm-hmm. Use this cool idea that they have as the vehicle to teach them about all this stuff. It, I mean, I know that stuff is probably easier uh, said than done. You know, I'm certainly I didn't dedicate my life to to educating students, but uh, I did dedicate to educating small business owners. But, <laughs> but, but I, I, I think you hit on marketing. something there, Chad, which is which is important, which is that you're going to learn more. And the topic of financial success or financial literacy is so much more important to most entrepreneurs out there. But you're going to learn so much more if it's referenced in things that you understand and you can link it to. Right. Because then you remember, because like, wait wait a minute, this is, right? The cars are going to, when the light changes red for me, cars are going to move across the street and and hit me if I walk across it. So that's how it affects me. I remember that. Right. (laughs) I I know exactly what to do when the light changes colors. So that's the same thing if they can have these discussion where you can see what it makes sense to them. Then when you start to teach things, they learn more. Right. And they absorb more. That's why, you know, to me, master's degrees, it's great if you have if you have a few years in the field and the experience, then you start learning more of these uh, master topics. You really soak them up yeah. because you have reference points and you... You understand those things. Yeah, they like bake in the infield, like the experience part, right? Right. <clears throat> and, and and you can do that even when kids don't have experience. You can do that by having them create their own companies and visions and make their experience real. And then now they're going to learn easier and they're going to learn better. Yeah. So what do you say to the entrepreneur where they already have their initial startup costs as far as everything that comes with starting a business? Mm-hmm. What do you say to the entrepreneur or business owners that, have this idea that they can't afford somebody like an accountant? I, I think that you should at least have a discussion with, with an accountant. Most accountants would meet with you for free. Um, and even if you want to do uh, interview them and get lots of good stuff from all of them for free, but they'll give you some references and some, some thoughts and some ideas and some good, uh, some good things to consider and some focus just an initial conversation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would have that. And the other thing, too, I would say is that if you can find a way to transform a couple hundred dollars a month, say, in cash flow to three, four, five hundred dollars a month, it's going to be well worth the money. And, and, and what I would tell other people, too, if you don't feel you can afford an accountant or, or that kind of professional advice, at least have a discussion one time with one of them and then say, okay, I'll come back in a year. So, right. so don't make it a all or nothing thing. Say, I can't. I can't afford an accountant, period. I can't afford an accountant more than once a year. But I am going to get that really good conversation focused on my business and, and what I could do. And just those little tweaks would yeah. be worth it until maybe the next year or whatever. I think our audience would appreciate it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and, and would you agree with me that, like, if there's one thing that you should make do with an accountant – and I think you should do more. But if there's one thing you should do, the probably the safest bet would be to pay them to do your taxes, at least for your business, because it's like so complex. I mean, we've all done a personal return and, you know, things like TurboTax have made it awesome. But when you get into, you know, business taxes, forget about it. You've got all these different forms and this and that. I'll tell you what, it has been worth the price, uh, you know, of admission for me over the years because, again, like, you don't want to mess that stuff up. And 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 then most accountants, to John's point, are going to look at what you're doing and they're going to understand your situation. And a good one will be like, hey, look, I noticed this while doing your taxes. This is what you need to be thinking about. And that's a positive first step, right? Oh, absolutely, Chad. And, and, and just, you know, just like having somebody like yourself uh, – 
help somebody with their social media and get their presence out there and build their their thing. Accounts are you know coming back the opposite way. We're terrible at marketing and and public speaking and things like that. So by all means, have you maximize that? It's the same principle for small money. They're going to help save you money on taxes, but they're going to keep it, maintain it for you. It, it'll be available when you need it. And then when you want to have those discussions, I'm looking at buying a house. I'm looking at selling a house. I've got mm -hmm. multiple properties. Which one do I buy? Which one do I sell? Mm -hmm. As you grow, um, their advice is going to be worth significant dollars as you continue to grow. Yeah, it's going to save you more than just money. It's going to save you yeah. <laughs> yeah. Save you a lot of headache. Absolutely. And, it, and it's going to help you keep your focus on everything. I was just having a, a discussion with a, a business coach before this, and one of the interesting things is as, as entrepreneurs grow and their businesses grow, they get to a point to where there's nobody above them to train them. Right. And that's when it's important for us to go out and seek professionals to help out to get to that next level because we know our business at that next level, mm -hmm. but we may not know management or right. finance at right. that next level. And that could take away from the vision. That could take away from your ideas and just your creative. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, I make this argument with people on websites. Like, yes, you can spend, you know, the the your two weekends, you know, Going using some uh, you know Wix or type of deal or something like that and and quote unquote build yourself a website um, and then what happened you you missed out on a weekend maybe two maybe three with your family and uh, and then you made a website that's like not gonna probably produce any revenue because you're not a website maker expert <laughs> you know right. like why why you know what what is the value of your own time I think that's another thing that like. That I've, as I've, you know, matured as an entrepreneur, I realized that, like, my time is the premium value in my company. Like, you know, and so what am I going to be, what am I going to utilize that? And if I'm not an expert in accounting, why would I want to waste an entire weekend of pulling what little hair I have left out, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> trying to figure out how to do something that I, that, that I could I could spend all weekend and still mess it up to the point where I got the IRS chasing me around. That's frightening. So, yeah. But um, the other thing, too, I wanted to talk to you about, and I don't know about, like, we've kind of got, like, three different decades going on here, I, I think. Um, and I think the thing that I've seen, even in my, you know, sort of Gen X generation, was that, like, when we came up, cr like, everyone that I knew was, like, F credit cards. Like, I don't, I don't mess with that shit, you know? Um, like I got what I got and that's what I spend and I don't do that was kind of the prevailing like you no know, normal sort of attitude I was the most common at least that I ran into right that's not normal anymore like credit cards and carrying credit card debt is like so normal now and in fact if you have no credit cards it hurts your credit. It's so ridiculous, you know? I know Dave Ramsey doesn't believe in having credit cards. Right, he's proud of the fact that he has like a zero credit report yeah, or something absolutely. like that. Yeah, absolutely. But then, to Chad's point, you have a large population of people that rely strictly on credit cards. I mm -hmm. believe the national average as far as um, debt per household with credit cards is over $9,000. Right. Wow. That's, a, that's a big number. Right, absolutely. Yeah. But to, I wanted to holler at you, John, even though, let's say our audience understands the importance of having an accountant and they have that free conversation, they get that game from an accountant. I've heard crazy horror stories as far as people falling out with their accountant or their accountant not doing their side, not playing their part, and then mm -hmm. getting their clients 
behind in taxes and everything. So I know in Chad's very first workshop, branding, he talks about knowing, liking, and trusting. How does somebody develop that with an accountant that they've never met? I, boy, that is such a great, great question, DeAndre. I mean, that's, boy, when we all ask that question of not just accountants, of, of all kinds of professional people, you know, do you care about me? Can you help me? And then can I trust you? And this is with our money. Yeah, and this is even more so. So I, I think that do I care about you is, is, is the first step. Are they speaking to you? Are they speaking things that make sense to you? Or is it generalities? Yeah. The, other, the, the important thing, I think, when it comes to accountants and the trust level, too, is it's not only a matter of expectations. What your expectations of, of your accountant is, is he just doing your taxes and see you next year? Or are you looking for a little more advice? Is, is he somebody you can kind of shoot an email to and say, hey, what do you think about this idea? You know, are you fostering that relationship? Um, how's that going to be? Uh, and then probably the best way is to also have the, the accountant have accountability so that you understand what he's doing and when it's going to be due and when it's going to be done so that it's not him telling you, oh, don't worry about this and these penalties don't really matter. And, and, and now we're in an uncomfortable situation because he's telling us not to worry about things that we don't understand and we're not really sure on. So the easiest way to get the, a new accountant to trust you is, is a new accountant having those expectations laid out quite clearly and then showing you, you know, here's your tax return, here's the deadline, here's the dates, and being very upfront about explaining all of those things to you and answering your questions directly. The other thing that I think that you always look for too is, is there ever anything in the accountant's demeanor where he'll check on something or he'll not automatically know, mm -hmm. right? Because it's interesting, I remember a seminar where I, I learned about trust was, was a component of two things. It was you trust somebody that they're competent, that they can do what they told you they're going to do, that Chad knows how to build websites, that I trust him. But the second piece of trust, which is more important, is will Chad tell me when he doesn't? No. Right. When he is over his head. <laughs> yeah. When he's right. hit something, when, so I said, uh -huh. when I said, look, I'm launching this in Turkey, and I need you to translate it to Arabic, and Chad's like, I can do that. I can do that, no problem. And then I get ready to launch, and Chad doesn't know Arabic. Yeah. And he never translates. So the trust is not that we trust people that they're competent. We trust that we have the relationship where they wouldn't hide the fact right. that they don't know something. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many clients that I've really nailed down relationships by looking straight at them and saying, I, I don't know that. I will certainly find Man, out, absolutely. and I will endeavor to help you and how it applies to you. But I, I can't always... And be aware of accountants that seem to know everything off the top. Yeah, right. You know, because that's also... That's uh, so true. You know, and that's where the trust is going to get, you know, a little bit. But they should be willing to share everything to you, with you. And if you don't understand it, they should at least be taking the time to try to explain it to you. And if you don't feel like they're willing to do that, I think you got a, a strike in the trust zone there. Yeah, I salute you a million percent for just being transparent and honest. Yeah, and, and yeah. I think that's important with, with clients because uh, with everybody out there, right? All business is essentially, at a certain level, a game of expectations. Like, yes. you know, you as the owner of the business, as an accountant in this example, you know, you have to set the expectations and and. If you do, if you're honest and you say, listen, I, I can't do that or our mm. thing can't do this or this, that's not our specialty, people will trust you because of that. 
Yeah. It's sometimes you have to say no to get the to to actually deepen a relationship. You know. And I I deal with that all the time. You know, there's there's certain things that I'm like, you know, there's just certain kinds of businesses that I don't want to work with, and I don't think are going to make great, you know, hero smiths. Mm-hmm. Or customers of Hero Smith, um, and and I think that's so important as a fundamental, and that's something that we work on with people, uh, is really figuring out who is that right customer, mm-hmm. and how are we going to design marketing, your brand story, and all these different elements so that they're they're attracted to you like a magnet, and that's mm-hmm. so important, mm-hmm. not just from like a marketing and making a lot of money and having a successful growing business, but also from an operational standpoint, right? Right. You know, like having that when you work with someone that's ideal, it's like they they glide through your system there's, like there's water going through a river. Right. There's less extra friction to, right. you know, those issues and not not having that chemistry and not having those expectations. Right. And when you give those people those guardrails and say, listen, you know, I don't do this. This is not my thing. <laughs> but I know someone that does or here's a resource or something like that. You can really build a lot of trust, you know, I think they that a lot. You know, so John, you're an you're sort of a, uh, as an accountant. I think of you almost as a as an well, maybe not so amateur, but like as a as a person that has their finger on the pulse of like economic issues, you know, and mm-hmm. and and really kind of can think maybe on a deeper level than economics. And as DeAndre and I are both like very political people, and how could you not be in the last four years, right? <laughs> right. But, but uh, one of the you know, best discussions I think we ever had was regarding tri- trickle-down economics, you know, this bill of goods that we've been sold since the 80s about how if we just cut taxes on the uber-wealthy, the, 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 the money will trickle down into the, into the peasants in the field and the workers at the minimum wage jobs. And then, and so I want, let's talk a little trickle down economics. A, does it actually work? Okay, I think, from my opinion and things that I've looked at, in the early 80s when Reagan first enacted trickle down, and he's the one that launched this thing, and we all, we all know this now and what's, what it's led to. But in the 80s, the trickle down was initially to, you know, the 50, 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 wage earners. And we really did see a, a huge development of the suburbs quite quickly. We, we saw a lot of housing boom going on in the 80s. Mm-hmm. We saw a lot of growth. We saw a lot of investment in the country. We saw a lot of economics. Reagan really had <clears throat> excuse me, some wonderful tax policies. He really understood fiscal policy as far as if the government isn't going to raise taxes and I give you deduction because you fund this, that helps the country, then the government doesn't have to fund that. So it's okay to forgive the taxes, right? Right. Not just a blanket, we're just going to cut just so you have more money, but not to, we cut and we direct the cuts by saying there's investment tax credit if you buy equipment because now our manufacturers will get busy building more equipment. There's, there's additional tax credits for hiring people or what have you. What, so the trickle down initially worked very well, I think, because of it it taking that middle class and immediately starting to rise them up towards millionaires or, or, you know, several millions of dollars, and now they're buying multiple houses, and you see a lot of activity in the economy because they're hungry. Right. Where I think trickle-down economics really, really got hijacked or started losing its, its effectiveness 
is anybody that's studied economics, and I don't want to get too deep into the woods with macroeconomics, people are out there rolling their eyes now, but, <laughs> but you, the multiplier... You'd be surprised. We've got a really smart audience. The multiplier effect behind money, we all learned that if you spend $100 and the people that you spend it with, they spend the same $100, and then they, the people that they spend it with go out and spend it again, then that same $100 is being multiplied in the economy. Mm-hmm. Right. It's being spent again and again and again. It's moving around. It's, moving it's around. fluid. Case in point, uh, in 2008, 2009, when those first stimulus checks rolled out, how long did those things sit in most people's bank accounts? They almost immediately went to Walmart. They, they, they right. went to the clothing store. They went to the, the mall. They went to pay back rent. Uh, all of that money got spent immediately. And most of the places that money got spent, maybe small diners or stuff, they took the money and spent it again. Mm-hmm. So you see that. Now, let's, let's, let's refocus to trickle down on picking on the billionaires. Let's, let's talk about the Bezos and the Gates and the, and the Buffets Musks. and the Musks yeah. and that. And do they still trickle down? And is there a true multiplier effect? And one of the things that we've seen, particularly with interest rates being lower and lower and lower, mm-hmm. is there's not. These people are borrowing money, and they're investing it for their own purposes, and it isn't putting as much money in the economy. Uh, case Right. They're hoarding it, essentially, in, right? In a sense, because what else are they going to do? Jeff Bezos doesn't need another Amazon. He, You give Jeff Bezos another billion dollars, he's not going to run to Walmart with it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's no he, he has no limitations. He could buy anything he wanted. And, and I mean, the guy built us on rocket, right? Right. So he's <laughs> probably going to put it in a fund that invests in other stocks. And we see the market exactly. go up. But, but it didn't go into the economy. So, and again, this is the same thing with the tax cuts now, is they're keeping more money, keeping more of their money. But trickle down meant that you invested more of your money. There's, there's no trickle, right? So the whole point was back in the 80s, these people were getting more money uh, net take-home, and they were taking it and buying equipment and buying other businesses and expanding and saying, I want to own multiple locations. I, I want to have a car lot, right? And they're, they're spending that money. The trickle down now at the very top, there's no more trickle. It doesn't go into the economy. just gets reinvested it in just, the stock market. Well, and, it just makes, know. yeah, it just adds another zero to their call. The risk get richer. Yes. Yeah. So to me... Trickle down could work again if you said, look, we're going to raise taxes on people maybe over a million dollars or maybe only people only, only, everybody hear me say that word, only, over $5 million. Everybody under, we're going to cut their taxes. So if you took and cut taxes on people, say, making $200,000, what will they do with that money? Well, they'll probably try to find more air and beep properties to buy to make more money right they'll right? reinvest it because they still want to they're trying to get to that millionaire level right mm-hmm. that's that's trickle down chad we're just not trickling the right people and and that's what's happening and you've also got a tax rate system where you know when you look at the rents and the cost of living particular people realize this in in colorado mm-hmm. in denver in particular absolutely that's right you're talking about a tax rate where people really don't have enough excess money anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so whether you're adjusting their taxes a few percent one way or the other, it, it's not going to lead to widespread growth because these people are too poor to start with, right? So, right, they're so, just getting their basic needs. Yeah, we, we have right. We have a, a, a large segment of the population that, that even if we try to provide more money to them necessarily, it, it's not going to get out in a big way. Mm-hmm. And then we try to, and then the upper rich kind of use the people in the middle class, those people making two or three, four hundred thousand, kind of in a way, Chad, as, as like human shields 
saying, oh, if you raise our taxes over $5 million, you're going to raise taxes on these guys over 200000 so you can't do it. Mm-hmm. So, you gotta, so if you're going to cut their taxes, which you should, then you have to cut our taxes as well. And Not if, necessarily, right? right if, we could, <laughs> if we could ever find a way in this country to decouple that discussion, that, that notice of, wait a minute, Bill Gates is not Chad Coleman. Bill Gates is not John McGee. Right. He makes, he's in a different tax bracket. He's, so increase in taxes on Bill Gates should not have to affect John McGee, and it, nor should it have to affect somebody making three or 400000 Somebody making 300000 or $4,000 will cut your taxes. You can have more of it to invest, to multiply, to trickle down. Right. On, on the other hand, the billionaires will raise their taxes a little bit because does anybody think th- that Jeff Bezos will starve if he doesn't have another billion dollars? Right. <laughs> and furthermore, what does he do with that? But as I was explaining to you earlier, Chad, this, this, the, the example I use is a billion dollars represents, I, I think it's $10,000, $100,000 loans. 10,000 businesses getting $100,000. Imagine would, that what that would do right what now. What would they do? And that's just co- one the pandemic. Yeah. That's just one billion from Jeff Bezos. Absolutely. I mean just think of think of that. That's trickle down, folks. That's mm-hmm. where you're putting it where it needs to be and then letting the people that are the hungriest multiply it. Yeah, I think that's so key and like I mean there's historical precedent for this. In the 60s and 70s billionaires paid like mm-hmm. 90% Taxes over, I shouldn't say billionaires, multimillionaires, mm-hmm. paid like a 90% tax rate, like all the way up until the 80s, I believe. And, and, and we created the world's greatest economy. I mean, there are other factors involved, no doubt. But you look back to the 60s, uh, you know, the f- late 50s, mid 50s, to, through, the, through most of the 60s. And it was the greatest economy the world had ever seen. And yet that yet at that point we were taxing multimillionaires ninety percent on over you know, whatever they had over a million dollars. And they were still able to do it. Yeah. It's it's interesting you say that, Chad. I was with a client this morning and he asked that question, so we Googled it and we looked it up. And in nineteen eighty the top tax bracket was eighty percent and it started at five hundred and eighty four thousand dollars. Wow. For married filing joint. So that basically means, so just because I'm bad at this stuff, so so every dollar I would make over five hundred eighty-four, yeah, that would be taxed at eighty percent. Correct. And and wow, that's incredible. And and I wonder and, what it was and, in and, like nineteen eighty-two after I got those tax cuts. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it, but see, the idea is is the discussion that we're having is incremental income, not income. I mean, people make you think. If you raise another 5% tax on people making over a million dollars, then they lose all of it, and it all collapses. It's like, no, you lose 5% more on everything <laughs> above a million. Right. Nothing changed on the initial million, but see what's happening? Again, we hijack these arguments to say, if you raise, if you take a little bit of this extra, you're taking it all, or you're going to collapse right. the system. It's that tired, old, conservative, sorry guys, yep. idea that of the slippery slope. If you take away my uh, bazooka, like John was saying earlier right. before he hopped on the pot, like that means you're going to take grandpa's hunting rifle too. And it's like, <laughs> well, no, there's a big difference between a bazooka and a hunting rifle, right? But, but, the, but the argument for the bazooka can't stand on its own. Right. So I need to couple it with another argument. The argument of raising taxes on the uber wealthy and, and, and you know everything beyond what most of our listeners are hearing, making more money than that, 
we can't have that conversation because by itself, we could do that. Yeah. But you have to couple it with that middle class and say, oh, no, 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 they're not going to raise DeAndre's taxes. Mm-hmm. And so we can't have no, that. No, we don't have to do that. <laughs> we <don't>, exactly. <laughs> we could literally just tax billionaires and probably change the country for, for a, in a positive direction. But what's, what's interesting about that, though, Chad, and this is the final, you know, this is that, that bottom line point. Would they cease to be billionaires if we did? Not likely, right? No, nor would their growth likely change. I, I can remember one time in my office having a, an optometrist that owned stores in the mall. Wonderful guy, and he had like four different optometry stores in the mall back in the 80s. And he was, I remember that his third paycheck of the year, right after Valentine's Day, he went over the Social Security max. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It was only his third paycheck of the year. how much money he was making. Yeah, but he Gosh, was just third stand- paycheck. Wait, so, so literally like six weeks into the new year, six weeks he was over year, seventeen thousand dollars or whatever. He was already it was over like a hundred grand as far as the max for the the top wow. top Social Security. But he was telling me how he was so, and he was he was visibly shaken that Clinton was raising the taxes, and he was like upset. But there was nothing in me that ever doubted that next year he would not show more than 10 to 15% growth in his net after tax. Even after the increase in taxes, he was still going to make more money than he did before. And if they raised him again, he would still continue to make more money than he did before. So again, it's that incremental concept that we can't seem to get past in having this discussion. It wasn't that the initial two or three hundred thousand that he was making was being adjusted. It was the amount after that, right? And so, that's what he was after. So, with that being said, if this trend continues, what kind of effect do you see this having on our economy and particularly small businesses? Well, I mean, everybody can kind of see the math. Eventually, we, we would be back to. I don't. I don't want to sound like a conspiracist saying we're going to go back to slave economy, but how long before the poor really can't afford to consume anything anymore? You know, if Walmart wanted to move the, the, the minimum wage back down to $8, would their stores not eventually go bankrupt because who could afford to buy their products? Right. And, it, you know, you, you have to have a consumer class, and we're taxing and we're giving, you know, we're having these issues and problems with that decreasing void in the middle pushing more people into that poorer class, which is, oh, by the way, Bezos, fewer people consuming on Amazon. You know, if you push me into poverty, I may have to cancel my Prime subscription. That does not help you. But on the other hand, if I took a billion from Bezos and I farmed it out to 10,000 different companies of 100,000 apiece, and they employed a million workers, and those million workers had paychecks, Guess what? They could buy a lot of Amazon shit. <laughs> what happens to Amazon stock? Does he not make more money? Right. Why do we have to have these discussions? Why yeah. can we not see these things? But that's what you, and you learn this in, in economics. That's the multiplier effect. You can take a little bit from the top, feed the ones in the middle, and the ones at the top will make even more because the economy is going to grow. And our, our economy has transformed from the old days of when it was largely like manufacturing-based over the last 50 years, though, it's become a consumer-based economy. Absolutely. And even like, you know, I, and, uh, and a lot of people like uh, my friends on the right who are listening to this right now are like, oh, these sound, guys sound like a bunch of socialists. I promise you we're not. But, uh, but uh, and, and here's the thing. Even the, you know, sort of pinnacle of American capitalism, Henry Ford, believed in paying his people a living wage 
And part of it was because it was so they could afford to buy a Ford from him. <laughs> like, he, why he understood would I, that process. Right. He yeah. understood that, like, hey, these people need to have good lives. They need to be, have, be healthy. They need to, to have enough money to, to, like, just work here and have a good life and afford to buy a Ford. <laughs> afford to buy a Ford. Yes. Right? <laughs> and yeah. it's such a simple concept. But I think that we still have, like, these, these, these like, grand... Um, some people in the country have these like, uh, you know, sort of misty eyed, nostalgic view of the American economy. It's like, yeah, I mean, would more manufacturing be great? Yes, probably. In certain in certain you know segments and for certain businesses, it could be great to have more more manufacturing jobs and, and all that shit, stuff. I get it. But largely the thing that moves our needle is our ability to consume things. Americans are consumer spending makes up about two thirds of the economy. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why it cratered in COVID because you you didn't have a lot no of immediate spending. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And then and then it and then it picked up even more because they were spending online. So you know, it, it, yeah, it, they got those stimulus checks and it was like, well, OK, I can now afford it. And then it's shot back up. Right. Yeah, exactly. And if you wanted to believe that that instead of Fauci, if it was really Bezos behind the covid, I, I might be listening to that one. <laughs> that, makes, <laughs> that definitely makes sense for them or whoever, whoever owned the right. company, whoever owned the company, Zoom created this right. virus to like <laughs> buy, our, buy our stock. Watch right. what happens. There's a conspiracy for you. Right. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. You know, that's. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting, Chad, that the other other thing that, that happens a lot of times when you start talking about issues like this in the economy and trying to decouple that middle class away from the upper rich and, and try to have that discussion on incremental income, not collapsing the system, um, it's you get divulged into throwing the socialism thing, right? Oh, you're just a yeah. socialist. Oh, yeah. oh, you must be a socialist. Here's a question for you guys. Are there any billionaires in socialist countries? Yes. How is that even possible, Chad? Right. I know. They are live there, under that oppressive there, regime. Are there <laughs> millionaires in socialist countries? Yeah. Richard Branson. You ever heard of him? Here's a question. <laughs> right. Are there possibly people that we could find in socialist countries who became millionaires? Now, how is that even possible? Right. Again, the facts are <laughs> skewing against it, right? If, <laughs> you know, you're a new, you're, you live in Boston. You must like the Patriots. I hate Bill Belichick. You know, you must love Bill Belichick. Are you a neighbor of Bill Belichick's? What, because I live in New England? Right, right. Right, because I, because I, I want to help the middle class more. That suddenly makes me a socialist mm-hmm. because I'm willing to listen to taxing Elon Musk a little bit more while he makes it to a trillionaire. That makes me a socialist? Right. Yeah, it, it's crazy. Right, if, if I want to reduce taxes on everybody under a half a million a year and raise them on everybody over a million a year, does that make me a socialist? It's just a lazy misnomer. It, yeah, and I, and I think again, it'd beware of people doing these things to us that adopt these extremist arguments when that's not the argument. That's not the center of the discussion. Right, you're arguing with facts, not emotion. Correct. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, I will give credit to the conservative side of the of the of the country's politics. They crush progressive when it comes to branding. They're so good. Oh, you would notice that, Chad. That's right up your. <laughs> they are so good. Leave it out to the marketing. Making guy. it, it simple. Market. Build the wall. You know. Uh, yeah. You know. Lock her up. All that stupid shit that's easy to understand, easy to digest, and people love simple answers to complex problems, even though those answers 
don't actually do anything or accomplish anything and often make the problem worse. But our minds, human beings, love things that are clear. Oh, well, duh. That makes sense. We got too many immigrants, supposedly. Um, Let's build a wall. (laughs) You know, it's just like (laughs) that's the way we are. And it's it's really sad. And I think that's something that uh, that that like I I, I've already said on the pod that I want to help. I'm out. I am here for you, progressives. If you need help telling your damn story and getting your value propositions in there so that voters understand you actually uh, are are looking out for the best interest, get off your ass and call me. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I will help that you. Was, that was something that I was talking with a client the other day about the conservative party and how the, the, one, the one thing I would say to the conservative listeners out there and Republicans out there, you can't have a party based on personal responsibility if you never hold anybody personally responsible. <laughs> that seems pretty simple to me. And, yeah. And that's all you need to say. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it, just real quick before we put a pen on this topic, but like, did Jeff Bezos and does he not still, his company still have a huge impact on like our infrastructure? Did he not use taxpayer roads to deliver all these things that 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 made him famous to set up this business, you know, using roads that you and I paid for, that all of us paid for, you know, using airplanes and airports that we paid for. They you in order to get to become a billionaire, he had to be in this American environment with these assets that you don't even think about. Like, you know, how important are roads to Amazon. Now, of course, now they're going to do drones or whatever, but you know, someday they might not need the roads anymore. But it's like, how much are we paying to keep up? And what is the environmental impact on that? Think about all the environmental impact on all the cardboard and the gas and not to mention the, uh, you know, like the actual making of the products and stuff like that. You know, that's why personally, I think that like, I would rather tax businesses based on their impact on the world, you know, like a carbon kind of tax idea, rather than uh, rather than the way it is now, which is like, okay, this is the rate, and everyone pays it if you make you know this much and all that stuff. You know, I'd rather do that uh, for businesses because, like, and maybe that's selfish because, like, my 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 business is very environmentally friendly, so I'm like all for this <laughs> idea, right? Like, I don't even like paper. I right. do we do design print stuff, but I'm like, you know, like we try to avoid it, right? It's like we're not living in the paper world anymore, so we have a, mo- a minimal impact. But I don't know. I think there's merit to those ideas. It's like, yeah, like you know, when you reach that certain level and you become a behemoth, uh, essentially a monopoly, like you know. God, I mean, just imagine the environmental impact if you took away Amazon for like a month and like how much, you know, all the exhaust and all the well, one cardboard of, you and know, all that. And, and, and when you talk about the big companies, Chad, from a tax standpoint, one of the other things that gets lost in a lot of this stuff is the evolution of, of the profit and the evolution of just the, the financial dynamics of larger companies. If you can remember our grandparents used to work for the same company for 30, 40 years. Yep. They'd hand them the gold watch and say, hey, what time does it say it is? It's time to retire. <laughs> and, and we're going to pay your insurance forever. And we're going to pay your pension, pension forever. Yep. And they had this. They freed themselves from that in the 80s, in the 90s, and got away from 
the health insurance, they got away from the pension, they got away from a lot of employee benefits, and their taxes kept going down and down and down. Well, the difficulty with that is, who's going to pay the pensions? We used to have a really neat, really nice capitalistic system where corporations took care of their workers, and the government didn't have to. So the government budget was usually fairly balanced or not too far off, and it was used to maintain roads. It was used to do the post office. It was used to keep up the police forces and do these things. But then what happened was the businesses not only got away from paying that stuff, then they started lobbying in Congress to say, we don't want the government to pay these things either. So now we're going to adjust Social Security for the, going forward. All in the name of what? We gave you a pass on your pensions. We, we let you get out of jail free on paying your employees. We gave you extra percentages on your bottom line, right. which Where's goes into your own pocket. Right, and now, because of that, now we've cut taxes. We can't even have the amount of money that we had before mm-hmm. to pay for these people that we've allowed you to not pay for anymore. Yeah. And that's business, but right? And then, we, and then the government cuts taxes. Where are they gonna get the money to take care of these people? And that's the difficulty going on in what we've yeah. seen over the last 20 or 30 years and why we see more deficits in the budgets in the governments and, and we have more of a fight over these things and taxes becoming such an issue. We talked 80% in 1980. The top bracket now is 39%. Okay. That's crazy. Do we difference. not have more people? Oof. Do we not have more people in this country? Do right. our roads not cost more money than they used to? Aren't our roads in worse conditions than they've ever been before? <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Okay. Is our tax base not less than it's always been? Yeah. It has to be. The rates are much, much lower. Mm-hmm. But what would be the difference if we started to reverse those a little bit and bring some of them at the top back up? Hopefully we're about to find out. You know, I think that, like, you know, it's hard to find positives in a pandemic, but I do think that, like, this made everybody sit back and realize, like, Oh my God, like what we've been doing is insane. Like the fact that the minimum wage was still, what was it, $7.25 an hour? That was pretty ridiculous. Since like 1991 or something like that, I think it was the last time I was raised, or 92 and during the Clinton administration. That's insane. Like, you know, when you see, like, we're one of the few countries in the world, you know, obviously there's countries that, aren't as developed as us, but like in terms of countries that are as developed as us or sort of at that level, you know, the Germany's, the Europe's, the, or excuse me, the England, uh, you know, uh, France, these, these different economies, you know, when you look at those, when you look at those, they're able to do these things and still, you know, have, like you said, they're still have billionaires. They're able to, you know, um, kind of find that balance. And, uh, Man, that's why I say Republicans are so good at branding because they sold people on like, hey, we're going to cut taxes and that's good for you, even though the tax cuts aren't for you. Right. It's like I have a bridge I want to sell you in Brooklyn. It's the best bridge you've ever seen. Leads to this really cool part of the city. Mm-hmm. I don't exactly own it, but will you buy it for me? <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> right. It's crazy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save $500 a year on my taxes so that Bezos and Gates and Buffett and Zuckerberg can save billions, and then I'll have eight fifteen percent less Social Security in twenty years. Yeah, right. But I'm, where do I sign up for that? I want to do that. That's what I really want that you've sold me on. So, cut my taxes and move on. Oh man, John. Well, this has been so awesome. Thank you for all those insights. It's been super cool to have you. 
so now let's kick it over to DeAndre's Newsman. John, you should hang out and see what's going on in the news in the business world. Most definitely, Chad. It is Black History Month, so I'm going to start with a little bit of black news. I like it. Jay-Z creates $10 million fund to invest in minority-owned cannabis companies. In an attempt to help rectify the war on drugs and its ill effects on black and brown communities, Sean Carter, formerly known as Jay-Z, is launching a $10 million fund to invest in minority-owned cannabis businesses. His latest venture is a step forward in reducing the negative and disproportionate impact the federal government's campaign has caused since its inception. It's really unbelievable how that can happen, said Jay. We were the ones most negatively affected by the war on drugs, and America has turned around and created a business from it worth billions. The Wall Street Journal reports the investment is the result of a recent acquisition of two California-based companies, CMG Partners and Left Coast Ventures. Jay-Z will reportedly serve as the chief visionary officer of the newly merged entity called The Parent Company. The brands we build will redefine growth, social impact, and social equity. This is our time. I'm proud and excited to lead the vision of The Parent Company. That's incredible. That's That's awesome. Who brought us that story, DeAndre? That is courtesy of Wall Street Journal. Oh, look at you going with the conservative newspaper pulling out the <laughs> Jay-Z story. No, I mean, that's incredible. Like, uh, it's just, it's the irony is so thick there, right? Like, they, they created this quote-unquote war on drugs, which effectively was a war on people of color. Um, because there were still a lot of white people doing drugs, and the arrest rates weren't the same, let alone the conviction and imprisonment rates. Um, but man, and then to like try to like cut them out of like, oh, okay, wait, we decided everything's cool now. Drug schmugs, we can make money off this. And then I, I you know, and then to obviously create like those typical kind of barriers for, for black entrepreneurs and, and entrepreneurs of color. Um, I love to see a guy like that stepping up because he has got the means, you know. Yes, sir. I know John's going to love this next headline. Tesla invests $1.5 billion in Bitcoin. <laughs> in anticipation of cryptocurrency becoming an increasingly valuable commodity in the marketplace, Tesla has invested $1.5 billion in Bitcoin. The move comes after recent changes to the company's securities filing. As a result of the update to their investment policy, Tesla will begin to accept Bitcoin as a form of payment, as well as allow investment in gold exchange-traded funds, gold bullion, and other digital assets. We expect to begin accepting Bitcoin as a form of payment for our products in the near future, Tesla says. This will be subject to applicable laws and initially on a limited basis. Because of this endorsement, Bitcoin has seen a boost in value among investors in the stock market. And that was courtesy of Bloomberg. Nice. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, uh, I almost dropped my phone when I read that headline. Like, just to think that to John's earlier point, right? Mm -hmm. Dude has... 1.5 1.5 billion with a B to just throw into Bitcoin. I mean, listen, I think Bitcoin is going to survive or maybe evolve a little bit, but but I think it's going to be a thing. I, I, I'm a I'm a generally speaking, I'm, I'm I'm a believer. But there's also the chance that it could like be outlawed by all the governments of the world, and this guy could lose 1 billion, 1.5 billion dollars. I mean, you know, he's probably smart enough to get out, and he'll probably get told like, "Hey, we're gonna crack down on Bitcoin. You better get your shit out." There's probably some insider deals there, but that's insane. Like, imagine like to John's earlier point, right? What if he took 1.5 billion and and invested in businesses maybe worth less than? Five hundred thousand dollars. Nah, man. 
Musk is thinking about clocks and mountains and shit like that. That's he ain't right. worried about none of that. <laughs> he's thinking about he's thinking about building a whole new planet just for himself on yeah. Mars, well, right? I, I, and I think there's been a lot of talk out there about uh, because of all these stimulus packages from governments uh, about are these currencies going to end up being revalued, or what's going to happen to you know the dollar, the the, the mm-hmm. euro, and yeah. these things. Whenever, whenever these governments start adding more and more of this debt to their balance sheets, is there a little bit of a devaluation? And will there be more of an effort to move towards a, a cryptocurrency? Absolutely. So I, I think that's what's mm-hmm. really leading to a lot of people yeah. like, well, wait a minute. We may, yeah. This may be the future. Yeah. Traditional currency usage is at an all-time low. Only 26% of all U.S. consumer payments came from cash last year. Wow. wow. That's, say that's that a together, wild world. Chad. Yeah, right. That yeah. That's Man. crazy. I mean, God, I can't, I mean, I feel like like 10, maybe 20 years ago, it had to be closer to 50, 60, 70% was cash. That's pretty wild. Yeah. That's COVID a, really expedited a lot of different things on a lot of different levels. So. Sure did. Yes, it did. This last headline is a little bit lighter, gentlemen. So Super Bowl streaker wins $374,000. <laughs> <laughs> After posting a $500 bond from jail, Yuri Andrada, or Andrada, my apologies if I'm butchering that, revealed via Instagram that he had won $374,000 bet on Super Bowl Sunday. The 31-year-old was arrested for shrieking across the field in a women's one-piece pink thong bathing suit during the fourth <laughs> quarter of the Super Bowl. While Andrada was booked early Monday morning on one count of criminal trespassing, the stunt was apparently very, a very profitable one. Reportedly, Andrada bet $50,000 on a prop bet at plus seven fifty that there would be a streaker at the Super Bowl. Oh, okay. <laughs> his buddy went out first as a diversion so he didn't get caught as quickly as his friend. After the incident, it was revealed that the stunt was executed to promote his friend's website. I told him that if he bought me tickets, that I would guarantee him that I would streak on the field for him. I threw my sweater on the floor, obviously to run, so I had, so I, um, all I had to do with this G-string bikini was run, and the cops thought it would be a funny joke to keep me in handcuffs so that I couldn't adjust myself for about the first eight hours before I got transferred to the police station. Oh, man. But he made some friends in jail. Yikes. (laughs) How about that? Oh, man, that's crazy. I feel like, wow, that's crazy. Like, how... So it wasn't the actual streaker. wasn't the guy that bet on it, right? It was like his buddy bet on it, right? I believe so. Okay, because like I think that's illegal, right? To like if you to do your own to, bet, like, or yeah, whatever. like to like make your own bet come. He true. might have had his friend do the bet. Do the bet right. for him. Nice. I, I always thought that maybe Giselle had bet him three hundred seventy-four that he wouldn't run down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. and that source was courtesy of Sport Bible. Ah, cool. All right. Okay. Hey, thanks for joining us today, John. It was awesome well, to have you on the pod. It was a lot of yeah, fun. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for all the knowledge, all the insight. Thanks, guys. Love to be back sometime. Yeah, that'll be great. We'll love to have you back. Well, thanks for listening to Live from the Vault, the Heroesmith podcast. Be sure to check out all of our episodes at epic.heroesmith.com slash podcasts and on your favorite podcast listening device. Special thanks goes out to Pine Tree Janitorial Service for our theme music. Check them out at pinetreejs.com or, you know, put it on the Spotify and put that thing on loop because they're a killer band, Denver local, sport local artists, and musicians. All right, folks, that's it for for today. We'll see you next time.